Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, December 8th, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we get together here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security. We're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore these challenges. When you talk to investigators looking into basic criminal activities, they'll likely tell you to, quote-unquote, follow the money. And if you'll do, you'll likely find out who is behind the criminal conspiracy. That tends to be true when you're talking about other kinds of illicit activities like terrorism or black arms market deals and many other activities in the international arena as well. Today we're going to take a deeper dive into this topic with someone who spearheaded some truly unique approaches to combating terrorism and other criminal conspiracies not long after the attacks of September 11, 2001. Our guest today is Juan Zarati. Juan Zarati served as the Deputy Assistant to the President and Deputy National Security Advisor for Combating Terrorism. He was the counterterrorism czar under George W. Bush, where he was responsible for developing and implementing the U.S. counterterrorism strategy and policies related to transnational security threats, including anti-money laundering, kleptocracy, and transnational organized crime. He was the first-ever Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes. In this role, he led the post-9-11 anti-money laundering and sanctioned regime expansion in the United States. He helped develop the international standards for anti-money laundering and proliferation finance, uh, supervised the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, which is OFAC, and the Treasury's Executive Office for Asset Forfeiture. He also drove the innovative use of the Treasury's national security-related powers, and ultimately the establishment of the Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence, or TFI. Prior to 9-11, Juan served as federal terrorism prosecutor, working on international terrorism cases like the bombings of the U.S. embassies in East Africa and the USS Cole. And for more than five years, Juan sat on the board of the Vatican's Financial Information Authority, where he was appointed twice by Pope Francis as the U.S. representative to oversee the Vatican's anti-money laundering reforms. For seven years, he was the U.S. advisor on HSBC's Financial System Vulnerabilities Committee, overseeing remediation of the bank's anti-money laundering system and adherence with the U.S. Department of Justice Deferred Prosecution Agreement. Wanzarati currently sits on the boards of various organizations, including Northwestern Mutual, Boston Dynamics, Cambridge Quantum Computing of North America, and the Director's Advisory Board for the National Counterterrorism Center. Juan is the chair of the Center on Economic and Financial Power at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and an independent advisor to Coinbase. He was a visiting lecturer at the Harvard Law School for eight years and is a published author, including the books Treasury's War, which came out in 2013, and Forging Democracy, which came out in 1994. Wanzarati's primary position today is as Global Co-Managing Partner and Chief Strategy Officer at K2 Integrity, where he provides expert counsel and strategic guidance to clients on complex internal and international financial investigations. 
He manages multidisciplinary teams advising on global anti-money laundering and sanctions compliance remediation, and he oversees financial integrity-related reforms for public and private institutions. Juan Zarate is a cum laude graduate of Harvard Law School and a magna cum laude graduate of Harvard College. Juan Zarate, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you, John. That was a very uh, kind and extensive uh, introduction. I really appreciate it. And thank you for the invitation to be with you and your listeners. Well, for for me, this I want to make sure that our listeners understand that the guests that we bring on this show are amazingly talented, uh, accomplished individuals, and you certainly fall into that category, sir. That's super kind of you, sir. Thank you. I'm humbled by that, and I'm really excited for this conversation. Okay, uh, let's let's go ahead and get started. There's a lot to cover today, and I'm going to tell you right up front that uh, I tried to do some research on this financial area because I know <laughs> how important it is for for American national security interests. Uh, but this is not my uh, my sweet spot. Even as an intelligence officer, I didn't spend a lot of time uh, focused on the on the uh, follow the money a bit. That was not my specialty. Uh, but so I'm going to ask you to sort of talk to us in layman's terms as much as possible on some of these financial issues, so we can really. Make sure we're, we help the audience understand. So, so let's get started. I, I like to ask people a little bit about their backgrounds before we dive into the core topic. And, and I think uh, uh, for this discussion, one of the things that we should try to understand is the pivotal day of September 11th, 2001. Can you tell us a little bit about what you saw transpire that day? Um, well, thank you, John. It, it was a transformative day, a tragic day, obviously, for the, for the country um, and uh, one that transformed the way that we thought about our national security. Um, I had three weeks before moved from the Department of Justice over to the Treasury Department. And for anyone that knows the geography or lay of the land in D.C. knows that the Treasury sits right next to the White House. And I had an office that was facing south. So I could see, John, I could see the Pentagon on fire. I could see the black smoke rising from across the Potomac. And... um, I'd been watching, obviously, on TV what was transpiring in New York um, in in shock and in realization that, you know, what those of us who had been working on counterterrorism for a number of years had, had known to be a war that was being waged against the U.S. abroad had now come home, right, in, right. in a very visible way. And in some ways, almost unbelievably, right, it was just so shocking um, and so tragic. Uh, but the reality was that we were at war. And that forced a transformation in how we thought about our national security, uh, one that required us to think differently and more aggressively about the terrorism threat and non-state actors, um, one that required us to be more preventative um, and um, predictive almost in our approach to national security, and one that, as the president asked us to do, asked us to use all elements of national power uh, to disrupt and dismantle terrorist and related threats, uh, which at the Treasury Department then meant, John, that we would use Treasury authorities, Treasury information, Treasury influence around the world, relationships with central banks, finance ministries, and institutions to try to uh, disrupt and dismantle terrorist financing networks, the way that terrorist groups raised and moved money around the world to use that not only as a way of disrupting terrorist attacks, but actually disrupting and dismantling their organizations and constricting their aspirations. At the end of the day, what we did was we began to transform the way the government thought about the use of these tools to actually bankrupt these organizations, or at least to make it harder for them to finance 
the things that they wanted to do to hurt America and our allies. So that's really what happened on 9-11. It began a transformation for how we thought about the use of our financial and economic power. Let, let, let's dig a little bit deeper into that. So you saw the events take place, transpire, as we all did on September 11th. You wake up in the morning on September 12th. Uh, did you have a conversation with with the president or, or other senior level leaders? Uh, how'd you get your orders uh, over there at, at Treasury to take on this challenge? How'd that well, specifically there, there transpire? Are a couple of things that happened. I, I think the, the, the first thing the, the president made clear is we're coming back to work. Yeah. Um, and in Washington on September 12th, that was a bit eerie, right? right? It wasn't scary, but it was eerie because the streets seemed empty. There were military uh, vehicles and soldiers, um, you know, patrolling or at least, uh, uh, you know, traversing the, the city. Um, and as we walked into, into the doors of the Treasury, we recognized that it was a very different world. Um, and, and one that was going to require a lot of time and energy and, and focus. Um, and the, the mandate, you know, initially from the White House, and it came from meetings that were at the White House. I wasn't yet the White House. I, I moved over to the White House to serve in the NSC and the president in 2005, which gave me more direct access and, uh, and role with the president directly. But, um, in those early days at Treasury, we were getting direction from the Secretary of the Treasury, and and the direction was pretty quick and swift, which was we've got to figure out the strategies that allow us to play a role in defending this country and in going after those that perpetrated 9-11. Now, there was a lot of shock, a lot of questions as to who had perpetrated, what had really happened, who had supported, etc. But really, from day one, there was a, a sense of purpose and mission that we had to figure out how we could use Treasury sanctions, Treasury authorities in the anti-money laundering world, our ability to affect international norms and standards, uh, our ability to access financial information. All of that had to be part of a, of a new strategy. And so we started literally from day one to construct that strategy, to think about our authorities, what new authorities we needed. Um, and and that then laid the groundwork for what would transpire over the the next you know days and weeks after that. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the construction of those capabilities at, at Treasury, and then we could get into the, the the mechanics of how it's done. Uh, so you took over those duties at Treasury. How did you go about building the capabilities needed to track these illicit funds, to counter the movement of those funds, and to contribute to contribute really in meaningful ways to going after not only Al Qaeda's funds but the funds provided to other Salafist jihadist groups and ultimately to numerous other illicit activities on the international stage. What were the mechanics there of building those capabilities? John, there's really kind of two, two elements to the story, two chapters to the story, if you will. Um, one had to do with leveraging everything and anything that Treasury had control over to begin to decipher what had happened around 9-11, who had financed it, who was behind it, who was supporting it, um, and then to map out, in essence, the web, the network of actors that were tied to al-Qaeda and al-Qaeda affiliates. Um, I'll get to the second chapter, which is sort of the deconstruction at Treasury and then what we rebuilt, because it's, it's an interesting story as to what happened at Treasury where we began to lose 
resources in the middle of, of this campaign. But to answer your question directly, I think there was there, there were some key elements. One is we needed information about what at the time we didn't know, which was who were the key actors, what were the key uh, entities, what were the channels and sinews by which Al-Qaeda was raising and moving money around the world. And um, we needed to identify those and then figure out our strategy to uh, to attack them, to target them, to arrest them, to freeze assets, et cetera. The second thing we had to do was figure out what authorities we needed, either ones that we already had, for example, the use of targeted financial sanctions uh, or their expansion, which we did with the signing, for example, of uh, Executive Order uh, 13224 uh, in September of 2001. Uh, The first action by the president post 9-11 in response to the attacks was this executive order that gave the Secretary of the Treasury broader authority uh, to freeze the assets of those that were involved in terrorist activities and those financial institutions that may be supporting uh, or facilitating that activity, which really was the first step and the first salvo in a terrorist financing campaign, which then allowed us to begin to name and target and freeze assets that were uh, that were relevant to the terrorist threat. Um, we, we had investigators at the time, too, John. Remember the Treasury at the time, this was pre-Department of Homeland Security, right. had about 40% of federal law enforcement. So you had the Customs Service, which was a major, um, major institution with, um, with incredible agents and investigators and assets and information. You had the Secret Service, which was, as you know, created by Abraham Lincoln uh, to protect the integrity of the, of the currency at a time in, during the Civil War when counterfeit was rampant. Um, uh, you had, uh, you know, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. You had the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. Um, you, you, you had uh, the IRS criminal investigators. So enormous law enforcement assets that were brought to bear in concert with the FBI and, and the intelligence community to investigate, uh, you know, terrorist operations and networks. Um, And then we looked at what could we do internationally, because Treasury um, has not just at the time guns and badges and not just regulatory authorities, but enormous relationships with central banks around the world, uh, Mm -hmm. finance ministries, institutions like the World Bank and the IMF or the body uh, charged with setting anti-money laundering uh, controls, the Financial Action Task Force. These are all things that the Treasury could drive or control or, or set agendas for, um, which we then did, right, to set new international standards and norms. Um, and then we worked, you know, with the interagency uh, to do things like the passage of the Patriot Act, which had provisions in it that broadened and deepened the anti-money laundering system uh, that tried to build greater transparency into the financial system to make it harder for rogue or illicit or terrorist actors to use or infiltrate the financial system. So it was all of that that we set in motion, given the assets that we had at at our command and given the overarching mission of doing everything to prevent another attack and to dismantle terrorist networks that we encountered. So in in my introduction for you, we talked a little bit about some of the organizations that uh, that you had responsibility for at Treasury. Could you talk a little bit more detail about uh, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Center, 
the Office of Foreign Assets Control and, and Af- Asset Forfeiture. T- tell us what they are, how they work, and why they are such powerful tools for combating illicit financial activity. Thank you, John. I'm glad you raised that because they, they are often unknown agencies in government, and those were three of the key assets that were left behind at the Treasury after the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. And so in 2003, when what is known as DHS was created, um, the Customs Service moved uh, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms was split, uh, part of it going to the Department of Justice, part the regulatory part staying at Treasury. Um, Secret Service went to DHS. And so there was a, there was a fundamental question of, okay, what's left behind and is Treasury relevant? Um, and part of the reason Treasury was relevant was that we had these very important agencies uh, that the three of them all interact with um, and touch the financial system in important ways. The Office of Foreign Assets Control is responsible for the administration of sanctions for the U.S. Treasury and the U.S. government. So anytime a country is sanctioned, a company, an individual, and in this case, terrorist groups, uh, it's the responsibility of OFAC, as it's called, uh, to manage those lists, to put out information about those individuals, to interact with the financial and commercial world, to explain the nature of those restrictions. And it's it's been OFAC that has really been at the heart of uh, the sanctions developments over the past you know 30 years um, and has been responsible for some of the the most complicated and interesting of sanctions programs. Think of Russia or Iran or North Korea or Venezuela, or Cuba. You know, those are all programs run by this little agency called OFAC. Okay. Uh, and think about the the implications. Um, FinCEN, as you as you referred to it, the, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, is responsible for the administration of what's called the Bank Secrecy Act. So you think about all of the requirements of the anti-money laundering system in the U.S., for banks to know their customers, for financial institutions to report suspicious activities, uh, for institutions to submit currency transaction reports, for uh, the registration of money service businesses like Western Union or MoneyGram or new crypto uh, platforms. All of that is administered by FinCEN. And in fact, their role has grown over time as the anti-money laundering system has been uh, has grown in importance and the requirements have grown so much so that FinCEN is now charged with establishing the first ever national corporate registry for beneficial ownership. That is to say, um, how do we know who owns what in the country? Mm-hmm. To date, that's been determined by state secretaries of state largely. Um, and that has been varied and problematic. you Think, think about the Pandora Papers or right, right. Uh, these other revelations of, uh, fr- you know, shell companies established in Wyoming or Nevada uh, or questions about what's happening in Delaware. Uh, there's now recognition that there needs to be a common uh, set of standards around understanding who owns what is known as beneficial ownership. Who, who Who's the beneficial owner of a company? Because it could be Vladimir Putin. It could be a criminal. It could be a terrorist. (laughs) Uh, We may not know. And so FinCEN now is charged with establishing that registry, first ever in in the nation's history. Okay. Um, And and then the Asset Forfeiture Office does exactly what it sounds like, which is administers um, assets that are forfeited per law enforcement cases uh, and then um, 
you know, seizes assets uh, that are relevant to those criminal cases or civil cases, and then uh, distributes those assets uh, to law enforcement and others uh, in, in a programmatic way. So there's one other office that I want to ask you about, and I, and I ask, I, I sort of set this aside because I'm a career naval intelligence officer. I also happen to teach a, a course called uh, the, the U.S. National or U.S. Intelligence Community at Carleton College here in Northfield, Minnesota, and I talk about all the members of the U.S. Intelligence Community, uh, and Treasury is part of that uh, with this new office that was well, this office that was created during your time frame. You spearheaded the efforts that eventually developed into Treasury's Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. Uh, can you tell us about how that office coordinates with other members of the U.S. Intelligence Community? Uh, with federal law enforcement and with and with partner nations around the world, John, I'm glad you asked that because I think one of the unique features of the post 9/11 environment and then the creation of the Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence was the fact that we we created for the first time ever an intelligence office within the Treasury Department, um, and it's the only intelligence and analytic shop in any finance ministry around the world. Wow. <laughs> um, finance ministries have financial intelligence units like our FinCEN, which administers the data that comes in from uh, uh, from the financial community and administers regulations. But to have an office that's fundamentally a part of the intelligence community and is producing information analysis relevant to that community and then benefiting from it uh, was something that, that emerged out of 9-11. Um, part of that was, John, there was a recognition in the, in the IC, the intelligence community, that we needed to do more and, and had to think more aggressively about financial intelligence itself. The, the very, the very uh, terminology was born in this period, finit, mm-hmm. right? It, it matched humant and sigint and mazint, the other ints. Well, you now had finit. Um, and as part of the finint environment, Treasury became a key partner. And we created an office uh, to not only recognize that, but to generate more exquisite financial intelligence and information about rogue networks and activities that uh, were dangerous to the United States. Because one of the things you recognize, John, very quickly, and you, you would know this being an intelligence officer, um, that all of our enemies rely on the ability to access capital. Right. Uh, <laughs> every enemy has a budget. Right. right. That's right. Um, and any enemy worth their salt that's trying to impact U.S. strategic interests or those of our allies has to access the financial system or the international commercial system. So one of our great advantages is obviously discovering where those uh, those money movements, those links, those networks lie, and then the vulnerabilities that lie within those. And one of the things that we recognized early on post 9-11 was we had a dramatic asymmetric advantage over our enemies, given the role of the American economy, the centrality of the American financial system, the criticality of the American dollar. And so our ability to think through how to use all of our tools to unplug our enemies from that financial system or to bar them from it or to make it, as we would say, harder, costlier or riskier for them to raise and move money around the world was a strategic goal and interest of ours. And anytime we made it harder for our enemy to make a decision because they didn't have the resources they needed or couldn't access the capital or the goods that they wanted, that was a good day for the United States and the U.S. Treasury 
And that was our goal and strategy. And the intelligence component was critical because it was not only informing what we did at Treasury, but was informing and was part of what the FBI, the CIA, uh, DIA and others were thinking about uh, in terms of how to view these networks and how to operate. There was some tension early days, John, as you can imagine, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. as to what you reveal, what you don't, what action you take, what you don't. But what was essential was Treasury had a seat at the table suddenly. We were contributing. And at the end of the day, by the time I left government in 2009, there was no longer any question that Treasury had uh, a role to play. The, the old questions of what's Treasury doing here were converted into what does Treasury say? What do they think about this problem? Um, and the, the Treasury Assistant Secretary for Intelligence and Analysis, um, there's, a, there's a new one just named, named for confirmation recently, um, is, ha, has traditionally now been the intelligence community's lead on what is known as threat finance world. Threat finance was a new term post 9-11. And the Office of, of the Director of National Intelligence has appointed the Treasury Department to be the lead for the U.S. government and the intelligence community on threat finance. So it shows you how far we've come in the perception of the importance of these issues and, frankly, the role of the Treasury in the community to help guide those uh, those issues and, and that collection. So, so I can tell you that, uh, you know, having served in a lot of different capacities during my career in naval intelligence uh, as an analyst, uh, as a field operative doing uh, human operations, case officer work and whatnot, I know that uh, you have to become a, an expert in, say, terrorism, uh, you know, studying different groups. Uh, you have to understand uh, transnational organized crime, et cetera, et cetera. But for, for the Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence, not only – I mean, I have, to, I have to think it was a challenge to get everybody up to speed and find the right people who could serve in those capacities who understood not only how to work inside the intelligence community, but also people who fully understood the international financial networks. Is that, is that a fair assessment? It's a, it's a fair assessment, and I think it's a challenge the government has across the board. And when you look at sort of the new technologies and, and digital platforms coming online, I think the challenge will, will in, increase over time. Right. You know, having experts that understand the crypto ecosystem, for example, oh, yeah, or yeah. Uh, some of the new digital payment environments or the DeFi uh, web 3.0 platforms and, and developments, you know, all of that is critical for the, the IC to understand fundamentally. But the other thing that we realized, John, is, you know, we weren't going to be able to import all the, the knowledge that we needed or all the expertise overnight. And frankly, what was going to prove most effective, at least with some of the strategies we had underway, was to uh, enable, enlist, inform the private sector. Hmm. And I think one of the one of the key innovations of this period from the Treasury Department was really to think uh, think more aggressively and, and and more by design about the private sector as an, an, an agent and actor in the space, not to not a formal agent and certainly not a strategy of co-opting the private sector, but to simply inform the private sector and enable them and empower them to understand the risks that they faced and the, the steps that they should or could take uh, to protect their institutions or enterprises. Because no, no legitimate bank around the world wants to bank a terrorist. <laughs> right. um, yeah. No, no um, c 
commercial institution wants to find their name on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, because they facilitated proliferation, right? So, you know, the, the, the elements of national security, which was to disallow access to the financial system, commercial system, to these rogue actors, was completely commensurate with commercial and financial goals, at least in theory. Um, we needed to figure out how do you enable and empower that and then how are we informed by the way that sanctions are playing out in the market, the way that re new regulations are playing out? And I think that's one of the great attributes of the Treasury Department, which is its outreach to the private sector, its role with the banks, its role with money service businesses. And more importantly, you know, uh, today, as we speak, uh, you know, putting out regulations uh, with respect to the crypto ecosystem, uh, which which is you know becoming more. Uh, more of a legitimate part of uh, the financial system every day. Yeah. So it sounds like you're, you, you, what you're talking about really is is making sure that the, that private enterprise, private corporations, uh, they're they're a partner. They are essentially a partner in this effort uh, to protect our broader national security interests. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1, and we're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Juan Zarati, and we're discussing illicit money networks, combating those networks, and why this is so important for American national security. Uh, Juan, let's get into the core of this uh, topic today. I'd like to discuss uh, anti-money laundering, sanctions, and illicit financing networks a little bit more detail. Let's start with sanctions. Uh, they, they tend to be at the state level. Uh, what is Treasury's role in enacting and maintaining sanctions, and how do countries emerge from sanctions? Maybe you could talk us through that process a little bit. Sure. And, and, and the fascinating thing about sanctions is they've evolved over time. And you're right. Uh, the, the predominant way that we have thought about sanctions uh, since the, you know, the, the 1950s uh, or, or sort of the dawn of the use of, of sanctions in, in modern American national security has really been around sanctioning countries. And so you think about South Africa, you think about Iraq, you think about Cuba, right? These are, these are country-based or regime-based sanctions uh, and sanctions are, in essence, a way for the U.S. government to um, control access to the U.S. financial system. So disallowing people to interact with the financial system, to have assets here, allowing us to block assets or freeze them. Um, but also a way of, in essence, commercially quarantining bad actors in the, in the international system. Right? And that's traditionally the way that sanctions have been thought about often as an aid to diplomacy, right? right? right. Post 9-11, what happened was an acceleration of this idea that we need to think about targeted financial sanctions and the ability to, to use them against non-state actors and individuals and entities. So one of, the, one of the innovations, but also complications of this period was that we saw sanctions by the US, by the European Union, even the United Nations, being targeted at individuals, individual terrorists, individual banks, individual uh, hawaladars, individual companies that were wrapped up and involved in, in terrorist financing or support. That was very different uh, than the traditional use of sanctions against the country as a whole where you're trying to affect their behavior. And so what's happened um, over time is really two things in, in terms of sanctions. One 
is this broader use against individuals and entities in addition to countries and regimes. And you see this not just with terrorism, but um, across the board uh, when you're talking about uh, issues of, of corruption or human rights or even cyber malicious behavior, um, where individuals and entities are being targeted uh, with, with these actions. And then secondly, more nuanced types of sanctions, which is to say not just an asset freeze or, um, or a travel ban, uh, but more nuanced sanctions around financial products and, um, and, and access to the financial system. The reason for that is as we got, we've gotten into more of these sanctions programs and more high-end targets, more targets that are interwoven with the international financial system have been hit, we've had to calibrate how we think about the ability to target those actors and to isolate them. And so you've got very exquisite um, sanctions, for example, in the Russian and Venezuelan context around what kind of debt or equity is affected by a sanction. Um, and so there's just more complex sanctions now that are underway. And the only way to get out from under it, you can challenge them in court. It's difficult to do that, um, is to request being delisted. And a delisting is handled administratively by the Office of Foreign Assets Control uh, the European Union has their own process. The United Nations has another process. Uh, but for the most part in the United States, the OFAC controls that delisting process. And an individual or an entity goes with their lawyer um, and seeks to be delisted. They either say, look, you're mistaken, or I've changed my, uh, my stripes, or I'm willing to do whatever you need me to do to unwind my relationships to get out from under this listing. But the reality is these are incredibly powerful tools and anybody that's listed uh, by the United States uh, feels the effect. Uh, and for the, you know, despite what foreign actors may say about, you know, being able to shrug off sanctions, um, every actor that is subject to sanctions, whether it's Iran in the nuclear uh, discussions, North Korea in, in the pressure campaigns there, the Russians, individual oligarchs, corrupt officials, et cetera, they all want off this list because it makes it very hard to interact in the international system. If you can't get a bank account, board members don't want to sit with you. You have to divest. It just makes it really hard to operate if you want to be a legitimate actor around the world. That's effective. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, money laundering a bit. I suspect there are many different types of money laundering. Uh, that the, some of it's done by governments like North Korea seeking to get around the sanctions that you just talked about. Uh, but there's also money laundering done by criminal enterprises uh, seeking to create uh, legal wealth uh, from their ill-gotten gains. And, and maybe a third kind, maybe related to terrorism financing or other transnational threats. I, I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but there's a we had on on our on our show earlier this year. Uh, the the uh, executive director for the Global Initiative uh, countering transnational organized crime. Uh, they I think they tend to be looking at a lot of these issues as well. Can you shed a little light on this area of illicit activity, how money laundering works? Sure. Um, I think traditionally, um, uh, what what you've seen over time has been. Um, a focus on money laundering from a criminal perspective. So in the 1970s and 80s, when money laundering became an, uh, an area of focus, it was really 
part of the focus on drug trafficking and drug trafficking organizations, which was uh, the ability of these groups to make a ton of money in, in illicit ways, whether it was drug trafficking, human trafficking, arms smuggling, and then the ability to then uh, place that money into the financial system, layer it in that system to hide the origins, and then to integrate it into that system. So those are the those are the three conceptual you know parts of AML: the placement, the layering, and the integration. And so the anti money laundering system um, has been built to try to combat that, to try to prevent the placement, to try to expose the layering, uh, and to uh, prevent the integration. Um, and you're right, that takes various forms um, because criminality takes various forms um, and the evasion of controls uh, is, is always present, especially as you talk about more organized or sophisticated groups uh, or even nation states that are acting as criminal enterprises like the North Korean regime or the Venezuelan regime. So, you know, there are, uh, you know, I'll give North Korea as the example. North Korea, which is often called the mafia state, has engaged in counterfeiting, proliferation finance, um, uh, smuggling, um, uh, fraudulent cigarette uh, and counterfeit cigarette manufacturing and trade, um, even interactions with terrorist groups like the IRA. Um, they, they've now made, uh, according to the UN, upwards of $2 billion in cyber heists and activities. Um, and what they do is they profit from it. They try to then uh, place it, leverage it, and obviously then use it and find ways of continue, continuously using it. For criminal organizations uh, that are trying to operate for profit, uh, this becomes essential because they need to find ways of placing their money, using it, um, and not having that money trigger suspicion, uh, not have it seized or frozen, um, and they need a cycle uh, through which they can use this. We've seen this with Mexican drug cartels where, um, you know, the money launderer for King Midas, as he was called, uh, found ways of using multiple bank accounts, multiple entities, multiple shell companies to move billions of dollars through the Mexican financial system over the course of years. And part of that is the ability to hide their hand, maybe to have some complicity and corruption in certain places, but then to layer it and then to move it uh, in ways that make it look legitimate. Um, and this is why you have, you know, money, but in the crypto ecosystem, in the art markets, in the antiquities markets, in uh, with dealers of precious metals and stones, right? Any way that uh, an illicit actor can use to hide and layer and then uh, integrate uh, their proceeds is a challenge for anti-money laundering. And that's how the system is built to try to uh, discover it, interact it with it, disrupt it, and, um, and ultimately dismantle those networks. Uh, let's talk a little bit about specifically how terrorists uh, finance their, their operations. And, and I ask this because we just watched uh, back in August— we watched the Taliban uh, recapture Afghanistan in very short order. 
and they did so, you know, when you see them on TV and you, you realize how quickly they did it, it was pretty clear that they were a well-financed operation. Uh, how the heck did they acquire all that financial support? I mean, any thoughts on that uh, based on your previous experience? Yes, um, and it's a, it's a rather tragic and unfortunate story because I think what the Taliban figured out is what a lot of militant groups uh, that begin to operate war economies recognize, which is they can use um, the economy in front of them uh, the populations around them, uh, the the capital in and around their environment to their full advantage, right? If, if they're if they're smart enough and, and savvy enough, um, and so what the Taliban did over time was uh, to use a whole range of sources of revenue uh, to to maintain their budget, to maintain their ability to fight, to pay fighters, to pay alliances, um, and that had to do with the drug trade. Um, it had to do with uh, being able to siphon funds uh, from the assets coming in from the outside, the United States and others. Uh, corruption, right? Elements of corruption. There was smuggling underway. The connectivity with the Haqqani network, which uh, you know are, are renowned smugglers. Uh, there are obviously concerns about Pakistani government support from the ISI, the intelligence services. You would hear this often from Amrullah Saleh, who was the, the vice president of Afghanistan when it fell. And, and when I was in government, uh, the national security advisor for Afghanistan. So, you know, groups that are able to um, persist and operate in an environment, find a way of not just living off the land, but diversifying their sources of revenue. Now, pre-9-11, you know, the challenge of al-Qaeda was you had not just their ability to operate in places like Sudan and then eventually Afghanistan when they migrated there, but they had external sources of, of funding, right. you know, donors uh, that subscribed to their cause, even, um, you know, charities that were uh, willing to operate. They, they ran businesses. You know, we, we exposed... Um, honey shops and others in Yemen that were tied to Al-Qaeda. So a whole kind of external network that provided funding uh, to, to the inside. But what you have with groups like the Taliban or, for example, the FARC in Colombia, uh, the Islamic State when it controlled territory in Iraq and Syria, are groups that are able to figure out a war economy, how to leverage it, um, and how to take advantage of the population, even to the point of, in the case of the Islamic State um, or al-Shabaab in, in Somalia, the ability to tax, um, tax the local uh, population, merchants, uh, those you know, checkpoints, or even when they control ports like Kismayo uh, that, that uh, al-Shabaab controlled for a number of years, the ability to tax and to, um, to impose duties uh, and to run, in essence, a war economy uh, for their purposes. So that's a real challenge when a group controls territory, or in the case of the Taliban now, when they you know, putatively control an entire state. 
We'll we'll see how how long they they last because they have to learn how to become a, a counterinsurgent force now, <laughs> trying to defeat their own Islamic State challenge inside Afghanistan. Yeah, and they, and they have to run an entire economy and one that's suffering from drought, suffering from the pandemic, suffering from the lack of resources from an external world that doesn't want to support the Taliban. Um, they're they've got their hands full uh, with with no doubt elements of the population that are incredibly. Uh, angry, if not hungry. Right, right. So, folks, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Juan Zarati, and we're discussing illicit money networks, combating those networks, and why this is so important for American national security. Uh, so, sir, we've covered a little bit the uh, basics on how Treasury works and how, how some illicit activities function through transnational financial networks. Let's talk a little bit about solutions. Maybe we can finish on a, on a positive note. Always want to end on a high note, <laughs> That's right. Where are the weak points in combating illicit financial networks? I mean, what work does Congress still need to do to enact better legal frameworks that, that allow us to hold people, corporations, or even nations accountable for financing uh, illicit transact, transnational activities? You know, I think we have um, just about as much authority in the federal system as you need to manage these issues. I think especially now with the passage of of what is known as AMLA, the the new uh, Anti-Money Laundering Act, um, with the establishment of of the federal corporate registry at FinCEN, which I mentioned, more of a focus on uh, beneficial ownership and transparency of who owns what in the country. Um, I think with that, we are in good shape from an authority perspective. I think the challenge always is, John, and certainly in this case, is effective enforcement uh, and application, right? And so um, it's it's fine and dandy that we, we may say that sectors are regulated, but are they really, are they doing what they need to do are we enforcing against the bad actors in the space? That's really the challenge. And when you're talking about, the, in, the, in the United States at least, the volumes and, and the trillions of dollars of, of assets that are flowing through the system uh, in, in different ways, and in ways that are well beyond the commercial banks, which are you know tightly regulated. You look at hedge funds, you look at uh, the new uh, crypto platforms, uh, you look at even money service businesses of all shapes and sizes. Um, there's often an underwhelming uh, degree of, uh, of enforcement or regulation uh, that would be smart uh, to, to ferret out the bad actors. And I think, to me, that's the big challenge. How do you enforce these laws in a reasonable and smart way uh, uh, so that you really are getting at the bad activity, not stifling innovation, not stifling economic behavior, which you don't want to do? Uh, but really, you know, rewarding those that are willing to play by the rules, frankly. Um, and you hear this in the crypto space, the crypto domain. You mentioned earlier, I'm an advisor to Coinbase, full disclosure. You know, for a long time, they've said, look, we want to abide by the rules. Um, but just make sure that, you know, the bad guys are getting punished because, yeah. you know, if we're abiding by the rules, the bad guys aren't being punished. You know, what good is it to, to play by the rules? So um, you often hear that. Um, and, and I think we've got to make uh, compliance and, um, and the, the quest for transparency an asset and something that is seen as an advantage in the marketplace. And that really comes, boils down to continuous good enforcement 
of the regulations that are in place. So I'll ask two quick questions on that. The first, uh, you talked about the ability to to actually enforce all these uh, rules and regulations. That's, I think, a function. You know, we we see this all the time in DoD and the intelligence community and whatnot. It's capacity. It's the number of people you need to be able to effectively enforce those those uh, regulations. Uh, is that something that in the financial networks on the enforcement side, federal law enforcement, uh, maybe at Treasury, do they have enough people to do what is being asked of them? Um, I don't think there are enough people, or at least enough of the right kinds of people trained uh, to do this. And I think it's, you know, we wax and wane with our focus on this, whether it's on, you know, kind of the right kinds of agents that have the experience on, you know, complex financial criminal activity or fraud, uh, all the way through the intelligence analysts that have to understand how to read a swift message, the bank messaging uh, message um, in order to analyze what's happening in a, in a network or in, a, in, a, in an environment. So I, I don't think I don't think we they have enough people. But it, it it's more about the right kind of capacity. I also think John, there's an opportunity with new technologies coming online to be smarter and better about how we think about targeting you know bad actors in the system. And you know this boils down to better use of the data that we do have, because there's a lot of data that the federal government has that isn't well used um, uh, in concert with what's out there commercially, which in many ways dwarfs what the federal government itself holds, and the ability to do that in a way that respects privacy and civil liberties. You know, that's a big challenge, but I think there are opportunities with the use of better technology, machine learning, right. uh, things like federated data analytics, which we work on uh, to improve the way we regulate and identify risk in the system. I was just thinking that artificial intelligence might help us with that in the future. Uh, but as a follow-up to what you were saying earlier, um, where you talked about the companies that are complying with the regulations, um, they shouldn't they shouldn't be punished. They should be rewarded. I, that, that boils down to sort of what I always refer to as economics 101. If you get the incentives right in your structure, your, your – uh, you know, your overarching laws, your regulatory frameworks, you get the right outcomes. And that's one of the things that we don't respond to very well from what I've seen over the course of my career, uh, that sometimes government doesn't get the, the incentives right, <laughs> and then we get yeah. bad, bad outcomes. Yeah. John, that's a really important point. And I, I think it's worth just a quick second with your listeners on this, because yep. we've really migrated to this environment where I think we're thinking more holistically about our national economic security. We look at the challenge from China. Um, and so when we talk about sanctions and anti-money laundering, you know, I think it's important to put that in relief because we, we also have tools like export control, um, our committee on foreign investment in the U.S. controls, other controls that are about uh, dis discovering where there's real risk to our national security uh, and, and economic vulnerabilities that we may have. The flip side of that is we haven't fully, I think, grasped our ability to use positive economic power, uh, the power of American capital, uh, American markets. There's been an attempt, certainly the prior administration tried with the expansion of XM, uh, the creation of the Development Finance Corps, uh, matching to a certain extent private capital with government capital in certain cases, to counteract what the Chinese are doing with the One Belt, One Road, right. the, the BRI program. So 
just to your point, not only domestically do we sometimes not get the balance right, we have to get this balance right internationally because uh, we're now faced with a broader challenge of national economic security where we've got a lot of uh, positive chips not yet being played on the table. So you you brought up China. That was actually one of the questions that I did want to talk about today. Uh, Let's think about this in terms of... uh, of international finance from a strategic level, American national security interest perspective. And and, and we'll bring up China. Uh, China has become sort of a serious challenge to America's leadership role in establishing kind of the norms for international behavior. Uh, what roles do you see for the financial world in, in constraining Chinese activities? Uh, for instance, China provides infrastructure loans to countries across the global south in exchange for access to natural resources. Uh, or use of facilities, and often at very high interest rates. Uh, When those nations cannot meet their payment schedules, uh, China takes back that infrastructure. And and the uh, port facilities in Gwadar, Pakistan, and uh, Hamantoto in Sri Lanka come to mind as examples of China having financed the creation of those ports at fairly high interest rates, and then when those governments couldn't pay it back, those ports are now under Chinese control. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that. This sort of, in my mind, falls under that soft power uh, capacity, uh, maybe sharp power capacity at, cer- at a certain point when, you, when you're discussing these financial networks. What, what is it that we can do to constrain China in this area? It's a great question. By the way, in recent days, there's been reports that the Chinese may take over um, the Ugandan International Airport in Kampala. There you um, go. And it, there's, it's being disputed. But it's an issue, uh, which goes right to your point, John, of Chinese debt diplomacy. Um, I, I think the challenge with China, uh, and frankly, I would argue the competition, if not conflict, is actually upon us in the economic and financial domain. Yeah. Um, and you see it, you see it in, 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 in three strata. One is you see it directly in the um, application of sanctions. So you look at Hong Kong, for example, and what you have in Hong Kong is a direct clash between sanctions regimes. And so financial institutions, including some of those that I advise, like HSBC, caught in the middle of demands from US, UK regulators and sanctions authorities, and what Chinese authorities are demanding and saying they can or cannot comply with. And so it's in the sanctions domain that you see uh, this challenge uh, immediately upon us. Um, and it, it will play out in the human rights domain. It's going to play out in different contexts. But the conflict is already there. Uh, it's playing out in the sanctions field. So that's, that's one strata or one domain. Um, the next is the one you described, which is uh, the Chinese are, are trying to use their capital, their influence, to not only extend their infrastructure and commercial opportunity, but really to create strategic uh, nodes that allow them to operate uh, wherever they need uh, for commercial, perhaps military purposes, et cetera. And in that regard, I think we need not just a U.S. approach, but an alliance approach with the Japanese, with the Australians, with the Europeans, uh, with the Indians. Um, This is where we need to think much more creatively and aggressively about where the U.S. is investing and and with multilateral institutions like the Asian Development Bank because there are infrastructure needs, massive infrastructure needs in the developing world, whether it's Southeast Asia or Africa or anywhere along the 
the one belt, one road um, sort of a map. Um, and so we need to figure out where it is that we need to compete and for what purpose. Now, we don't have to be everywhere the Chinese are and the Chinese are making bad loans and throwing a lot of money at things that probably aren't worth what they're paying for. Um, but we do need to challenge with, with our capital. And I think we need a strategy around investment capital and investment interests that then matches what we're doing on the defensive side, which you've seen the Australians and the Japanese and the Europeans begin to think uh, more thoroughly about where they allow Chinese investment. And this, right. this goes right to the heart of the Huawei debate, right? How, <laughs> how embedded will you allow a Chinese entity when you don't know what the Chinese are going to do with your data and they're not willing to respect the boundaries uh, that, that, you know, the Europeans and the Americans or North Americans uh, need or want. So that's a, that's a second strata, which goes right to what you're describing. The third is, is also really important because I think the Chinese are not only challenging in these ways, they're also trying to change the rules and the, um, the center of gravity of the financial system itself. And that, um, that goes right to the heart of the digital financial system, what they may or may not do in the crypto domain and how they are trying to displace the U.S. dollar and the U.S. financial system as the center of gravity. Right. And they recognize that's important not just for their economy, but for all the reasons we've been discussing for the past uh, few minutes around the, the essential element and asymmetric power that the U.S. holds currently because of uh, those tools and that leverage. So Beijing wants all roads to lead to Beijing, whether they be f physical or, or digital, uh, is, is sort of what I hear you saying. Exactly. Uh, we are coming to the very end of our show here. Uh, Juan Zarate, you wrote those two books, Treasury's War and Forging Democracy. Uh, I think after our listeners uh, hear everything you had to say today, I'm sure they're going to be really interested in finding those books and reading them. Uh, where can they find your books? Thank you, John. Uh, Forging Democracy may, may be out of print at this point, uh, but Treasury's War remains in print. It's in audio. You can just go on and Amazon. Uh, Public Affairs is the publisher, uh, available in softback. Um, it, it's a fun book, in part because it, it tells the story of this transformation post 9-11. It's got some great characters in it. Um, and I really tried to uh, tell the story through my lens and through the lens of others that I witnessed. So I think it's a good read because it's got good stories in it. And the stories around North Korea, I think, are the heart of the book. I, I think your readers and, and listeners would enjoy it. And, and full disclosure, and for your knowledge, when, when I teach that course on uh, terrorism and counterterrorism at Carleton College, I actually assign your book, Treasury's War, to my students uh, because there are some really interesting things to think about there and how to combat terrorism on the counterterrorism side of the, uh, of the course. Uh, Thank you, so, John. I, re I really appreciate that. And by the way, Carleton College is a great college. Uh, my, um, my niece um, went to school there and uh, just a, a remarkable school. And, and so thank you for teaching there and thank you for, uh, for assigning the book. Yeah. Uh, so we have come to the end of our show today. Uh, Juan Zarate, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm certain our listeners learned a great deal from you. <laughs> I know for certain that I did. So uh, what, do you have, what do you have left on your uh, schedule for today? Thanks, John. Um, I've got uh, a, a presentation to the American Bar Association talking about ransomware and crypto. Uh, I think there's you know a ton of attention in the federal government around how we deal with the, the rise of ransomware and the use of crypto and, and what that means for the regulation of crypto. So I'm going to be talking about that 
Uh, and then I've got some client meetings and uh, then I got to pick up the kids and take them to soccer. <laughs> okay, okay, fair enough. All right, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Have a great week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.